verses of chapter 16. Turn there if you need to find it in the blue Bible. It's always helpful to have a Bible open in front of you as we go through the text. And that is on page 238. 1 Samuel chapter 16, 1 through 13. Let's stand together as we read God's word. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And Samuel said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me, before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinabab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There yet remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. If you were here last week, I mentioned that one of the best ways to think about the book of First Samuel is like two staircases or maybe a, a V shape. Starts at the top and you work your way down for 15 chapters. And then in chapter 16, you turn, you, you've reached the bottom at the end of chapter 15 and you begin to work your way back up. And so in chapter 15, Samuel is, is depressed. He's grieving. He's an old prophet He first gave uh, all of his best younger leadership years and skills to the people of God, trying to trying to rescue them out of a sort of a pit of not not paying attention to God rather than paying attention to themselves. But ultimately, they decide we want a king because we want to look like everybody else. 
And so they choose Saul, or God actually chooses Saul for them as a warning to say, hey, you, you want somebody that's like, like the world, you're going to get somebody like the world. And then Samuel, in a great effort, tries to give all of himself to, to, to Saul. But at the end of the chapter 15, we find out that Saul really is just for Saul. Saul's just like the people of God. And so we come to the bottom of this staircase, and Samuel is stuck. He's stuck in what I call the, the frame of pain. He's gotten in this place, and God's trying to rescue him out of this by saying, hey, I see a king. And that's one of the controlling words in this chapter is the, the Hebrew word raha, R-A-A-H. It means to see. It's mentioned nine times in the chapter. And we see it in verse, uh, verse 1. How long will you grieve over Saul? See, he, God senses that Samuel's stuck. I've rejected him from being uh, the king. Now fill your horn with oil. I'm trying to get you out of this frame. And, and I'm sending you to Bethlehem for I have provided, and that, that Hebrew word provided is raha, for I see a king. Samuel, I realize that in your frame of pain, you can't see past this frame, but I see past the frame and I see a king and I want you to see the king. So I'm going to help you move out of this frame, move to Bethlehem and go find this king. So Samuel obeys God and he goes to Bethlehem to find a king. Now, immediately, what do you think? Okay, a thousand years later. Some wise men and some shepherds, they're going to go to the Bethlehem. They're going to be looking for a king. What kind of king are you looking for? When, when God says, I've found a king, just what comes to your mind? And, and what Samuel discovers and what the wise men and the shepherds discover is somebody very different than the king that we might think from a worldly perspective. When Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, he lets everybody, everybody know he's coming for a sacrifice or a celebration. And you want to think Thanksgiving. You want to think it's a, a big barbecue. It's a time where people are going to gather around. There's going to be food. There's going to be a lot of fellowship. And he wants to make sure everybody's invited. And you notice in verse 5, he's not going to rely on the Evite RSVP from uh, Jesse and his family. He's going to make sure uh, that they get invited. So he specifically goes to them. He actually consecrates them. And whatever he does physically, it sets them apart. That's the word, what that means. And he's signaling to Jesse and his sons, something unique is going to happen to your family as you all come to this great celebration. And little does Jesse or any of his sons know that one of them is going to be anointed the king, the king of Israel. And from this line is going to come another king from this little town called Bethlehem. And I want to look at these verses just by using two words this morning that might help you follow along. First, the word seeing. Again, this is a key word for the whole chapter. And the second word is shepherding, seeing and shepherding. Verse 6 and 7, seeing. When they came, this is, this is Jesse and his family, Eliab comes before Samuel. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look 
Do not see his appearance. Don't, don't just see his height or his stature. I've rejected him for the Lord sees Raha, not as a man Raha sees. A man Raha's on the outward appearance. The man is always looking on the, the surface. That's all he can see. But the Lord is looking into to the heart of David or the heart of people, and he's looking at the heart. When, when Jesse enters this celebration, you can imagine very proudly he's been consecrated. Something great's going to happen. And he, he comes before Samuel, who is probably got some prominent place that he's either sitting or standing. And, and of course, everybody who comes, they want to be in front of the prophet. It's like a, the celebrity has come. And so Jesse brings in his son and oldest to youngest, one by one, he kind of parades them before Samuel. It sort of feels like uh, the county fair where you've got the judges and either the, the cows or the pigs or the pies or the pumpkins, whatever it is, they're all, all kind of coming through and the judge is standing there trying to look at that and say, well, which one is the best? Which one's going to get the, the blue ribbon? And one of the things that we, we see here is that Samuel still can't see. Or maybe better, he, he can't see the heart. He's trapped on the surface. Eliab, he comes in and he's handsome and he's tall. And so immediately, uh, Samuel's heart is drawn to this man and saying, oh my gosh, I've come looking for somebody powerful, somebody who looks the part, somebody like when you think of the presidential election, are they, are they telegenic? Do they, do they come across good on television? Forget their, their heart, but just do they look like, the, look, look like they're going to be the president? That's what Samuel's stuck on. He's stuck on that surface. He can't see the heart. And we all understand Samuel's coming out of this frame of pain and he's doing what anyone who's been in a, a relationship that's broken up, he's rebounding. Any familiar, any, anybody familiar with rebounding? You, you, you've had your heart stomped on by your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you're rebounding. So the next person who comes in the door looks like the right person, right? And you'd say, whoa, whoa, I think you're on the rebound, buddy. Just slow down. And Samuel's on this rebound. He's, he's been at this bottom part. He's been damaged. He's really looking for the next shiny object. And he sees Eliab and he says, man, this is the guy who's got to be the future king. Let me just make some observations here. First of all, you shouldn't read this passage and think that God is against attractive people. Because you, if you read a little further down, David seems to be attractive in some form. It's not like God can just use ugly people. That's not what you would want to say here. It, it's just that God wants us to see that outward appearance in his leadership addition qua equation, outward appearance in that equation is zero. When you're looking at God's addition equation, the things he's adding up to see if this is going to equal a good godly leader, outward appearance is nothing. It doesn't subtract. It doesn't add. It doesn't disqualify. It doesn't qualify. I love this passage from the Apostle Paul who apparently had received some 
negative feedback on his Twitter account. And it's about his personal appearance. Imagine. Apostle Paul has come to Corinth. He planted the church. And some people just don't like the way he looks. And they say this. And it gets back to Paul. Some say, 1 Corinthians 10.10, Some say, my letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, I'm unimpressive, and my speaking ability amounts to zero. Ouch. I mean, that's not what you want to hear as the church planter. Boy, what you write is great, but when I see you, whoo, not impressive and not a good speaker. And I love how Paul responds a little, I'd say a little sarcastically, a little sharply. Well, I wouldn't dare say that I'm as wonderful as these other men who tell you how good they are. Their trouble is they only compare themselves with each other. See, they come in and they're just measuring on the surface who looks the best, who sounds the best. We're only just using superficial circumstances to find out who's the best. Measuring themselves against their own little ideas, what stupidity. Just in case he wanted to make sure everybody knew what he thought. My goal is to measure up to God's plan. You see, he has a totally different measuring metric. He's not using outward appearance. He's, he's not using something impressive. He's saying God has a, a, a character equation. And what you appear to be is a zero in that. It doesn't add or subtract. Paul understands this. So second observation here. 3,000 years ago, when Samuel is easily attracted by the surface, if Samuel is easily attracted by the surface 3,000 years ago, how much more easy is it for us to be tempted to be attracted by the surface today? I mean, think about that. Here's Samuel. The very first thing is he's attracted by this outward, superficial surface. How much more of a temptation for us today? Just this past week, the Washington Post ran this article, and here's the title. What do my cosmetic surgeries, cosmetic surgery patients want? This is written by a plastic surgeon. Title, what do my cosmetic patient surgeries want? To look better in selfies. So he's noticed over the last 10 years that the the age of the people looking for cosmetic surgery has gone down 10 years, the average age. And it's because people come in and they judge themselves by arm length appearance. And they're snapping these photos that can't give you an accurate perception of yourself. And they say, I don't like this. I do like the selfie of this person. Again, an unrealistic picture. And can you make me look like this person? Here's his last line. The truth is selfies provide inaccurate feedback about how we look. And generally make people feel bad about themselves. You just can't get an accurate picture of yourself at arm's length. You and I, we live in an arm's length world. 
And God wants Samuel to remember. Samuel, do you remember? You remember Saul? Tall and handsome. He looked like he was going to be the king, and he's running the country into a spiritual hole. So let's get out of, let's get off the superficial surface and let's move towards the heart. And I wonder how many of us believe that selfies and social media give us an accurate picture of reality. That your social media account, your Facebook, your Instagram, your selfie, somehow that shapes what you think reality is. And I would suggest that if you're tempted or maybe trapped on that surface, there's four weeks left in Lent. And that would be a good project for you. Just to say, you know, for the next four weeks, I'm going to get off that. I'm going to see if my perspective changes about myself, about the Lord, about the world, about other people, because I'm not going to make judgment at, by arm's length photographs. Third observation here. Although Samuel is attracted by outward appearance, he also is tuned in to what God has to say. So you, you see, he says, gosh, this has got to be the right person in verse 6. But the Lord said to Samuel, and implicit in this, Samuel's listening. So, so he is tuned into what he thinks, but he's self-aware enough to know, gosh, you know what I think may not be the, the end all. I'm also tuned into the Lord. And the Lord comes in and says, that's not the person. And my question here is just for you and for, for me, are we self-aware enough to know that by what we see, that might be providing inaccurate feedback to our souls? Just how you view the world, how you view a situation, how you view yourself, just, just to simply be able to step back and say, you know what, just because that's the way I see the situation, that might be inaccurate feedback. So I don't want to just be tuned into what I see. I want to be tuned into what God is seeing. I want to be tuned into what God has to say. And so he tunes in. Proverbs twelve fifteen, a good Proverbs to memorize. The way of the fool, you know what this says? Seems right to him. I see something and it just seems right. But the wise man is tuned in. He's listening to advice. See, a, a foolish person just is going by this superficial observation. But the wise man, he's got a, he's got a tuner that's tuned into to another voice, God's voice, and he's listening to that advice. So one of the key components of being a, a part of Christ Community Church, especially if you're here as a visitor, is we're trying to get you connected to the Word of God. We want you to walk home this morning and to say, I know more about Psalm or 1 Samuel 16 than when I came in. I got tuned into what God has to say. And we're trying to put you together with people so you can hear another perspective, so you can hear somebody, you can get good advice and move in a wise direction. Well, Samuel is tuned into God's voice, so he waves off for the first son. The second one comes in. You can just imagine Jesse. Okay, it's not the first one. It's the second one. He waves off the second one. He waves off the third one. And, and you get the feeling here that Samuel and Jesse are they're kind of losing energy. I mean, we thought it was the first one. It's not the first. It's the second. It's the third. And you notice the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, they don't even get named. 
It's like, well, okay, now we're just running them through quickly. It's not, it's not any of these people. None of these people have the, the heart God is looking for. And finally, in verse 11, are these all your sons? I mean, because I'm tuned into God and none of these people are it. So I want to move to our second point here, the shepherd. Verse 11, are all these your sons? And he said, well... There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send, send for him. There's a number in the Bible, number seven is a number for completion or perfection. So seven days of creation, it's a completed, it's perfect. There's a number of those sevens through the Bible. And so it's like David is the eighth. We have the perfect number of sons, and he's the eighth. It's like he doesn't even seem to count. He's the youngest. The youngest in the Hebrew word means runt. You know what that word is? A lot of times you think of it as the runt of the litter. It's the one that is the smallest or the weakest or the one that gets left behind. When I was in elementary school, we had a neighbor who there was some stray cat who came in and had babies in their garage. And this person was not a pet person. And we were kind of like the zoo family. We had all kinds of pets. And she comes over holding this one little kitten. I mean, I'm not kidding you, like three inches. I, you know, eyes closed, still kind of goopy. It's gross. I remember it very vividly, like third grade. And she's holding this and said, the mom took all of the kittens except for this one. What do we do? That's, that's David. Everyone was chosen. Everyone got an invitation to the party, but there's this one, like, like, like the disposable one. We don't know what to do with him. He's the youngest. He's the one who does slave work. That's shepherding. He's the one who's not like, he's, he's not like even there. A Hebrew scholar named Robert Alter writes this, very insightful. David is a kind of male Cinderella. He's left to the domestic chores instead of being invited to the party. You see that? See, all the seven sons are trying to get their foot in the slipper. Slipper of the king. Who's going to be the king? And none of their feet seem to, to fit. Yet the tending of his, to the flocks will give David exactly what he needs in his battle with Goliath. And later to lead the people. David is a kind of male Cinderella. He's left the domestic chores. He doesn't get an invitation to the party. Yet God has him in a place that he's learning things that's going to help him in the next chapter in Goliath and going to help him to be the new king. While the world seemed to be passing David by, and maybe you by, God has you exactly where he wants you to build something into you right now for a vision that he has for you. Alter goes on, the David story replaces the theme, replays the theme of the reversal of primogenitor that dominates Genesis. You know primogenitor? Primogenitor is the oldest gets everything. If you're the oldest son, you're the one who gets the, the name. You're the one who gets the wealth. You're the one who, who gets the, all the property. 
And this David story replays this theme that's all the way through the Bible of a reversal. David's not the oldest. He's not one of the seven. David's the eighth, and therefore, it's like he's not even there at all. And so in this passage, and we say this a lot of times, there's a chord that gets played, just like you and I think of, of, let's have a prettier chord than that. Man, that's better. This chord gets played over and over. A reversal of the world's values. So God chooses Abel and not Cain. God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. Ishmael. God chooses Jacob and not Esau. God chooses the old barren uh, um, Sarah and not the, the young, fertile Hagar. Even in 1 Samuel, God chooses Hannah, this lowly woman, and not the priest, Eli. In the New Testament, the disciples come in. They're before all the religious elite. And what do they say? These men, they're unschooled and ordinary. There's nothing their outward appearance makes any difference. What makes a difference? The one thing they noted, you remember what they said? They've been with Jesus. The only thing that makes them stand out is that they've been with Jesus. They've seen something that's made a difference in their souls, but they don't have any outward appearance. And so what's happening here is a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. God is choosing this eighth person. God is choosing this runt that gets left behind. God is choosing the person that from the world's values doesn't appear to be very worthwhile. And of course, all of this is pointing us to who? To Jesus. David is the best Old Testament shadow. Samuel, the great prophet, he's going to anoint somebody who's going to be king. And it's a king that God himself has his eye on. And Samuel is coming just like the rest of the world saying, it's got to be somebody tall and attractive and powerful and speaks well. And he comes and finds out it's a little runt. And the wise men and the shepherd, shepherds, they come. They're looking for a king. And it's a little runt in a manger. Still kind of goopy. Not very attractive. God's reversing the values of the world intentionally. 1 Corinthians one twenty two, Paul says this, The Jews demand a sign of power. You hear that? Some group of people, they come in and say, you've got to have power. That's what matters. That's what the Jewish people are looking for. The Greeks, they're looking for wisdom. Power and wisdom, these two things that you're looking for for at the surface. But remember what Paul says, but we preach Christ, what? Crucified. Stumbling block to Jews foolishness to Gentiles. 
Now, why is the crucifixion a stumbling block in foolishness? Why is the crucifixion a stumbling block in foolishness to the world? Because the world is stuck on the surface. People who are meaningful in our world people are people who appear to have power and wisdom. Paul goes on, to those whom God has called. In other words, to those who see now. Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you and I see Jesus hanging on the cross, when you really see when it's, that's why I said in the prayer, majestic, when it's uh, full of splendor, when, when you see that he has exchanged all of his eternal glory and he's put it on you. And nobody can take it away. You have an inheritance, inheritance that can never be damaged. It can't rust. It can't be stolen. It's actually yours in Christ. And when you see that uh, Isaiah 61, your beauty has, or, or his beauty has been exchanged for your ashes. When, when you really see that God sees you as beautiful, now you stand in awe. Again, from the marriage conference, Paul Tripp, he says this, you are hardwired for all. <clears throat> Your heart will always be controlled by some kind of awe. And what I'm trying to help me see and you see this morning is this is awesome. This is awesome. And I just wonder if you see it as awesome. Or is it, well, that's what I do on Sunday mornings. See, you and I are controlled by some kind of awe. We are awed by ourselves. We are awed by other arm-length pictures. We're awed by some other person, some other position, some power, some wisdom. But see, my question is, what do you find awesome? Because whatever you find awesome, that controls the trajectory of your life and the condition of your heart. What made the difference between David and Saul was David thought God was awesome. And Saul thought people were awesome. And you'll see it next week in David and Goliath. How do you know if you have a heart like David, a heart after God? What, what, what do you think is awesome? I'll close with this illustration. Frank Gajalznik he died in 1995 at the age of 95. And his death brought an end to an annual pilgrimage. It's a pilgrimage he made fit for 53 straight years. He always made it on August the 14th. Frank faithfully went on this pilgrimage for the purpose to honor a man who had died on his behalf. That man's name was Max Colby. 
And the place that Frank went to visit was Auschwitz. Max Kolbe was a Catholic priest in Germany when Germany, or, or in Poland, when Germany invaded Poland in 1939. Kolbe organized some shelters for refugees during the war. Many of those refugees were Jewish. So eventually Kolbe became somebody that the Nazis were suspicious of, and they sent Kolbe, the Catholic priest, to Auschwitz to die. To discourage the people from escaping from Auschwitz, they said if any one person escapes, ten people have to die in his place. One day in July, a man from Colby's unit escaped, and he wasn't found, so the prisoners came out, and they were lined up, and ten men were chosen to die. They were sentenced to live in a bunker, baked by the sun, no water, no food, till they died. One of the ten men selected was Frank Gajalsnik. Frank was in his 40s. He had a wife and a couple of children. He stood in the line and he started sobbing. My poor wife and two children, what will they do? As Frank stood there sobbing, Max Colby stepped forward and said, I'm a Catholic priest. I'd like to take his place. And everybody went silent. Why? Because something awesome was going to take place. In the middle of this terrible moment of exercise of raw, ugly power, something pierced that. And something awesome really powerful was taking place to to shame the power of the world. The commander agreed to the exchange. Frank was quickly returned to the ranks and Colby took his place. Frank later says, and I quote, I was put back into my place without having time to say anything to Max Colby. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and I could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. See, everyone saw it it as immense. I was condemned. I, the condemned, am to live, and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me. I was saved two weeks later on August the 14th. Colby was the last one left alive of the ten men, and they injected him with poison to kill him. Frank lived, and for the rest of his life, for 53 53 more years, every day, every year on August the 14th, he came back. See, something happened to Frank that was awesome. And it shaped him the rest of his life. He couldn't just go back and say, how about a cheeseburger? That, that just wasn't possible for him in the same way. This thing had affected it and this thing had changed his heart. This thing had t- changed the trajectory of his life. And so he was always influenced by it. And my question for us is what do we think is awesome? 
We have to admit, if Samuel is attracted by the superficial, you and I have hearts that could easily be attracted by the superficial. And here's Samuel. He's the old prophet. Think at some point you get done with that, but he's not. Is it power? Is it wisdom? How smart you are? Is it your beauty? Is it your checkbook? Is it your athletic ability, your musical ability? What, what do you think is awesome? Whatever you think is awesome, it's shaping your heart. How do you know if you have a heart that's after God, you think this is awesome? If you don't see Jesus as awesome, you, you're trapped on the surface. If you're a 20-year-old female, you might be trapped in the selfie surface. You're on your way to plastic surgery because you live in an inaccurate world. It's a world at arm's length. If you're a 20-year-old male, you might be trapped in Fortnite. You foolishly believe what's awesome is you have another power level. You get to tell your friends all about it. If you're a 50-year-old businessman, pastor, might get trapped on the surface of success. What's awesome is your preaching or your paycheck. If you're an immigrant, you might spend your whole life living in the shadows of a world full of wisdom and power, and you only think of yourself as the eighth son as if you're not even there. I wonder if you see, if you're self-aware enough to, to live with accurate feedback about yourself or the world, and if you see the, the true shepherd, the true shepherd comes, and what does he do? What makes a good shepherd? He lays his life down for a sheep. That's awesome. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're in a culture. We don't just want to blame the culture. We're, we have a heart just so easily captured by the surface. Just thinking this one more thing could really pull our lives together, and it would be awesome. But my prayer is just this whole service, this one hour out of the week, would be like us taking a moment just to stand still and really see what's awesome. And then have that shape the trajectory of our lives, the condition of our heart. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our closing song.